gospel lesson this morning is found in Mark 10, beginning in verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you truly are a God of mercy and grace, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to your children, to those you have called to yourself. We ask you this morning that you would be present with us, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. Would you give us hearts, minds, and ears that are supple to your leading and your guiding? Be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're currently in a 15-week series on the Psalms of Ascent. And these are liturgical songs, songs that shape the life of Israel And they would be sung by faithful Israelites as they traveled three times a year to Jerusalem for the three major feasts, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And these songs shape Israel. They're meant to be sung by them as liturgical songs. They're songs that help orient the pilgrims to God and to the world around them a hostile world, a world that's hostile toward God. And we come to Psalm 123 after receiving uh, good news of deliverance and God being a help in trouble and after hearing peace among the people of God. And so we come to Psalm 123 as a song of immense hope, immense hope in God's mercy that counters a world filled with contempt and scorn. Now, I had the unfortunate opportunity to witness a world filled with contempt. I spent a few months in Johannesburg, South Africa, the summer between my junior and senior year in college, and I was working mostly with black South African college students at the University of Johannesburg. Many of them could remember the fall of apartheid in the mid-90s, the election of Nelson Mandela. But just like the United States that had ended slavery in the late 1800s and desegregated in the 60s and 70s, racial hostility was still really high in Johannesburg, especially. And occasionally I would witness or hear a story about a friend that would experience racial contempt. The most common scenario was a few of my friends would be walking by a house that was filled with white South African students, many of them who were descendants of the Dutch settlers in South Africa, And these white South African students would begin to throw bottles, or they would throw food, 
or cans, anything they could get their hands on and my friends as they're walking by. They would loft some of the most disgusting, wretched words at my friends. Some of the most grotesque things you could say about a human to shame them and hold them in contempt. They would treat them with anger and disgust because they were different. Because they oriented their lives differently. They treated them with contempt. And I imagine ancient Israel, those faithful in Israel who were traveling through Israel and the surrounding lands to Jerusalem experienced something similar. Maybe it was unfaithful Israelites, their ancestral brothers, those who were bound to them by a nation and a covenant, who would lob insults at them and they would laugh at them for taking their Bibles so seriously, for being so theologically and morally conservative. Or maybe it was the unbelieving world that would insult them. They would call them unenlightened, they would call them ignorant. They'd say, get with the times. We're in the first century. That's our world too, though. That's the world we live in. And you've got to face that too. And our children will have to face that as well. If we orient our lives around God, if we make God the center of our world, you will inevitably face the contempt of others. Inevitably. It'll come from those inside the broader church. Folks will label you either as conservative or as progressive, depending on their stance. They might say to you, you take the Bible too seriously. They'll laugh and they'll kind of scoff at you because you take the Bible seriously, that your, your moral ethic is high because you take the Bible seriously. Or they'll say to you that you don't take the Bible as seriously as I do, kind of with this smug grin. It'll also come from outside the church. Contempt will come at you outside the church. People will call you ignorant. People might call you archaic for believing that God exists, one, but also that God raised a man from the dead to save the world. They will scoff at you. They will hold you in contempt. And they'll hold you in contempt because they hold God in contempt. They don't believe that God exists and they don't believe that he's good. And so you will feel it. You'll feel it in your body. You'll feel it in your family. Your children will feel it. So how does Psalm 123 help us? When those insults are lobbed at you from outside yourself, how does Psalm 123 help us? How does it shape the way we deal with contempt and maybe A better question is, how might it shape the way our children deal with it? How might it help our children deal with the contempt of others? Because our world is growing more and more hostile toward God, more and more hostile towards Christians, and our children are the ones who will face it most fiercely, even more fiercely than we do. What Psalm 123 teaches us is that when you do face that contempt, when you come up against a world that is hostile, a world that holds you in contempt and insults you, you throw yourself on the mercy of God. You throw yourself, all of yourself, your body and your soul onto the mercy of a faithful God. But that's pretty, like, theoretical, right? That sounds great. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. How does Psalm 123 flesh that out for us? What does that really mean? If you look at 
the beginning of Psalm 123, the psalmist says, To you I lift up my eyes. So it begins by turning your gaze toward God. You take your eyes off of the people who are throwing insults at you. You take your eyes off of the people who are scoffing at you. You don't give their voice the weight that they think it deserves. And you spend more of your time dealing with, talking to, being persuaded and guided by God. Not by the people who are lofting those insults at you. You acknowledge that God is the one who is in charge of the world. The first thing you do when you turn your eyes on God is you're actually acknowledging that he's the one in control. When you determine that you're going to move your gaze away from those who are holding you in contempt and you turn it towards God, you're acknowledging that he's in control. Listen to the language of the psalm. He says, to you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. By using language like enthroned in the heavens, the ancient pilgrims were calling God the sovereign king of the universe, the one who is in charge. He's the one who created the world. He's the one who sits in the heavens and rules all things. He is the one who has no one else to answer to but himself. He's enthroned in the heavens. And as modern pilgrims, when we proclaim that God is our God and king, when we proclaim him as sovereign, we are turning our gaze to him. We're claiming that he is ours and that we are his and that he's the one who gets to tell us how to live our lives. He's the one who gets to direct us. He's the one who gets to shape the way we respond to contempt. So you acknowledge God. You acknowledge him as the one who's in charge of the universe. And the second thing you're doing when you're turning your gaze to God is you're placing yourself in a posture of dependence. Verse 2, the psalmist says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of their mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Now this is strange to us because most of the time when we think of servants, we're thinking folks who are begrudgingly obedient to their masters, mostly because we're familiar with 17th and 18th century American slavery. But that's not at all what this psalm is talking about. It's not a begrudging attitude. There's no suspicion. There's no suspicion of the servant to his master. There's no begrudging attitude. There's only room for submission. There's only room for obedience. There's only room for dependence on your master. As God's servants, we're safe in the governing hand of our master. The safest thing you could ever do when you face the contempt of a hostile world is to throw yourself on the mercy of God, to acknowledge that he's really in charge and to place yourself in a posture of dependence on him. Now, I'm currently in a season where I'm having to uh, occasionally do this with Maddie Grace, especially when she faces the contempt and the scorn of her brother. Uh, there are things that she wants to do. You know, there's things that she, ways she wants to respond to him, either fight him or run away from him, neither of which, well, running away could be helpful most days. Uh, but there are things that she wants to do, directions that she would prefer to go, that will ultimately end up poorly for her. So I have to stop her in mid-action 
sometimes, stop her in mid-swing, and sometimes physically turn her gaze toward me, right? She's three and a half. She's almost four. Her eyes are all over the place, all over the place. Look at daddy, right in my eyes. And I'll say to her, Maddie Grace, who's in charge? You and mommy, daddy. She always has great answers. Now, how does that flesh out? doesn't always flesh out great. But, and then I'll say, Maddie Grace, what did daddy tell you to do? And then she'll sometimes recount what I told her she is supposed to do. What she's doing in that moment, what she and I are doing in that moment, is she's acknowledging who's in charge, right? The daddy's in charge. I'm orienting her toward me. But I'm also teaching her that I'm a safe place. That submitting to daddy, doing the things daddy tells you to do, doing the things mommy tells you to do, that's a safe place for her. And now we have to do the same thing with God. When we face the difficulties of insults, when we face the difficulties of contempt, we have to learn to do this. And it takes effort. It takes a lot of effort to trust and to hope, to acknowledge that God is in charge, to turn our gaze toward him, because it doesn't come naturally to us. We want to fight or flight when we face contempt. But we have to fight in ourselves to turn our gaze to God and believe, truly hope, that these demeaning social relationships are not the norm and they will not endure in God's world. And he will one day make it all right. So you throw yourself on God's mercy by turning your gaze to God. And then the second thing that Psalm 123 tells us, the second way it fleshes it out in verses 3 and 4, is that you call out to God with rigorous honesty. You call out to him with rigorous honesty. And there are two parts to this honest prayer. Verse 3 begins with, Have mercy upon us, O God, have mercy upon us. And so you cry out for mercy. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. This cry for mercy is a hopeful plea that calls on God to act. It's a plea that calls on God to actually do something, not just to make you feel better. Now, that's good too. You want to ask him to make you feel better, but it calls God to act, and it's rooted and rested in his history of his dealing with his people. It harkens back when we cry out for mercy, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. We're hearkening back to the, like one of the most popular phrases in the Old Testament that was found in Exodus 34. God reveals himself to Moses, and then a voice is heard, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God answers contempt when people cry out for mercy, God answers by giving himself as the ultimate act for mercy. He offers himself to us as the merciful God, the only merciful God. One author put it this way, the God of mercy thus is presented as the alternative, the antidote to unbearable relationships and social inequity. So y'all, this cry for mercy is medicine for our souls. In a world that's hostile, dealing with people that hold us in contempt, holds the church in contempt, holds God in contempt, this cry for mercy is medicine for our souls, weary souls, because it is emotionally and spiritually exhausting 
to deal with the insults that people might lob against you. It's exhausting. So you cry to God to receive what the world will not and cannot offer you. You cry to him for mercy and grace because you will not find it elsewhere. You will not find it outside of him. So that's the first part of that rigorously honest prayer. But the second part to this prayer is that you acknowledge the pain of contempt. Listen to how the psalmist puts it. It's actually really fascinating in Psalm 123. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. What the pilgrims are saying as they're hearing these insults lobbed at them from unfaithful Israelites and from the world is, we're fed up. We've had enough. If you were to translate it literally, it says, for abundant is our fill of contempt. In other words, ain't nobody got time for that. We are done, God. They're, and remember, they're addressing God. They're not addressing the world. They're addressing their Lord. Have mercy on us. Ain't nobody got time for this. We've had our fill. We've had our fill with the scorn and the contempt of those who are at ease. They're acknowledging with rigorous honesty that their souls are overflowing, are overwhelmed with the insults and the contempt of other people. So when you call on God for mercy, you do so acknowledging the weight, acknowledging the, the weight of the pain of insults. Now, I've been reading a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Uh, it's mostly about the brain and body interaction and the healing of trauma. Just light reading for the summer. No big deal. And he's dealing mostly with veterans who've suffered PTSD after war and, and some people who have suffered some pretty significant trauma from abuse or neglect. And one of the comments he makes about the difficulty of the process of healing when someone has been uh, abused or neglected or assaulted uh, is this. He says, human beings are experts in wishful thinking and obscuring the truth. The greatest sources of suffering are the lies we tell ourselves. Working at the VA, I soon discovered how excruciating it can be to face reality. And that's as true for those of us who experience the contempt and the insults and the scorn of others as it is for those who experience trauma and abuse. You have to go, you, you can't go around the insults. You can't find a way to healing by walking around them. Psalm 123 teaches us that the only way to move past contempt is to move through it. To move past insults is to move through it. It's to be rigorously honest about the pain that it's caused our bodies and about the pain it's caused our souls. We have had more than enough, God, of the scorn of those who are at ease. You find a safe place. You find a safe place in God. You find a safe person who will let you cry out to God in their presence with rigorous honesty. You quit telling yourself lies that it doesn't hurt that bad. 
because it does. It hurts real bad. And you go talk to God about it. And you confess with deep, profound honesty how much it hurts. And you find a God who knows how much it hurts. Right? You find a God who put on flesh. You find a God who entered into human suffering, who experienced the pain of contempt on the cross for you and me. This isn't some theoretical option for him. It's not like the pain of contempt and suffering is theoretical for God, right? He's the one who entered into the suffering. He's the one who entered into the contempt, who was abandoned and abused for you and for me to win us back to himself. So you confess with rigorous honesty, acknowledging the pain of contempt when you call out to God. I'll close with this. The book Unbroken is the story of Louis Zamperini. Louis was an Olympic track star turned World War II bombardier, turned soldier adrift at sea after his plane went down and then turned into a POW in a Japanese POW camp. And during his time in the POW camps of Japan, he experienced excruciating abuse and contempt at the hands of his captors, but at the hands of a particular captor who they nicknamed the bird. And the bird singled Zamperini out from all the rest. They think it may have been because he was more athletic than the rest. Maybe he was, because he was such a star, this guy held him in such contempt. Either way, the bird abused him over and over and over. And after the war, Zamperini returned to the States with a number of the other POWs. But he struggled to deal with the contempt he had experienced. He would have nightmares where he struggled with his captors. Sometimes he would strangle them, fighting them in his nightmares, reliving it over and over and over And he would attempt to cope with his experiences by drowning them, drowning them in alcohol. He was on the verge of becoming a full-blown alcoholic until one day his wife brought him to a Billy Graham evangelistic crusade, you know, one of those big tent revivals, 1949. Billy Graham preaches the good news of Jesus Christ. And Louis Zamperini, for the first time in his life, really met Jesus. He had been praying while he was adrift at sea, but he finally met the God who put on flesh, who faced the contempt of captors. And it was there in a single person in Jesus that he felt the weight of God's power and mercy. He found what blind Bartimaeus discovered 2,000 years earlier, when he saw God made flesh walking out the streets of Jericho, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Louis Zamperini found in the person of Jesus the full weight of God's mercy. And when you face the insults and the contempt of others, the only good response, friends, is to throw yourself on the mercy of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
because he knows what that's like. He's been there. He's done that. He's got the t-shirt to prove it. And he's got the mercy to give you. Let's pray. Father, you truly are a God of grace and mercy. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It baffles us how often you allow us to return to you over and over and over. You are present with us in the midst of our suffering because you are a God whose suffering is not theoretical, but you are a God who has experienced the scorn and the contempt in much worse ways than we have. So Lord, thank you for being a safe place. Thank you for being one who identifies with us. Thank you for being one who put on flesh to save us from our sins and from a world filled with sin and sorrow. Lord, we ask that as we come to you to offer our prayers and supplications to you, would you hear us? Would you receive our prayers as joyful supplications, asking for you to be at work in our lives and the work of our friends and our families and our city and around the world? So let's join our hearts together in silent prayer according to the following concerns. Let's pray for the advance of the gospel throughout the world, especially praying for our mission partner, Third Millennium Ministries, as they seek to provide high-quality electronic seminary education in multiple languages around the world. Let's pray for those in our city who live without life's basic necessities, especially praying for our local ministry partner, City Rescue Mission. Ask God to bless their efforts to provide hope and healing to the needy in our city. Let's pray for our president, Donald Trump that he and all others in authority will promote justice, restrain evil, and uphold integrity and truth in our nation. Let's pray for Chris Manchigaya and his family while he is away on deployment with the Navy. Ask God to be a refuge for Chris and to support and comfort his wife and children in his absence. Let's pray for all those who are sick and suffering in our community this morning, asking that God will draw near to them. Let's especially remember Branson Bishop, Gar Garganis, Hector Harima, Jay Kirk, Misty Woodcock, and the family of Trina Anderson as they grieve their loss.
Let's pray for the children and youth of our church, that they may grow up in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all people as they learn to trust and rely upon Jesus Christ. Father, we lay all of these requests at your merciful feet in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.